Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. There's little doubt that computers have revolutionized our world and radically transformed all aspects of contemporary society. But when did the computer age really begin? Physicists and engineers tend to invoke William Shockley's development of the transistor as the key event, while mathematicians typically point out the pioneering work of Alan Turing as the natural origin of the computer age. For University of Southern California analytical philosopher Scott Soames, on the other hand, the conceptual origins of our modern digital age can be clearly traced back well beyond either of those two to the seminal logical insights of Gottlob Frege, first published in 1879. Specialization in philosophy has occurred just as much as it's occurred everywhere else. With the result that you can't get all of physics in one mind, you can't get all of chemistry in mind, sure. you can't get all of philosophy in one mind anymore. Right. So we need to do something, however, to produce. No one mind is going to produce a total picture. Right. And if you want to engage more people, <laughs> yeah. obviously, you're going to have you to have, do to have overlapping pictures that yeah. have a broader appeal, but not a universal appeal. Yeah. It's interesting with analytic philosophy because when I was, I took some courses in philosophy when I was younger, and there's this idea of, in the Anglosphere, very crude idea that, well, we're the guys that do analytic, logical, rigorous stuff, and then there are these flaky continentals, and you know, they talk about all this metaphysical stuff. They're old fashioned. I don't know how true this is in terms of the. a reflection of, of the way professional philosophers act, but that was certainly the sense that I was picking up, that there was the sense of, well, you know, stay away from those flaky idealistic guys because their stuff has been proven to be not terribly uh, fruitful. Uh, that, was the, that was the reputation that, that, that it seemed to have when I was... Well, see, the word metaphysics. Metaphysics used to have a very bad odor in a certain stage of analytic philosophy, roughly up until around 1950. Um, since then, metaphysics has taken off. I was a colleague of a person who's considered one of the leading metaphysicians of the last half of the 20th century, namely David Lewis. Um, and he has a number of people he's influenced who followed him. There are other people who are taking off on their own. Um, it's, it's a burgeoning enterprise. There's a real question in my mind, and I think in the minds of a number of people. There's, there's no real question that, uh, of course, metaphysics is a, is a legitimate subject in philosophy in which we can make progress and, and come to understand some things. But to what degree 
is the question, what are the fundamental aspects of reality? What are the most fundamental parts of the universe as we know it? How far can you go in examining that question without simultaneously being a philosopher of physics, for example? Um, and there is certainly a, an important strain in contemporary analytic metaphysics which says, you better be pretty well connected with the most basic empirical science of reality in order to try and make sense of it and fit it into what you think might be a larger picture. That's not universally acknowledged, but it's very widely acknowledged. Is it growing? Yes, it's definitely growing. It's interesting because from a physicist's perspective, there tends to be this manifestation of a sense of frustration. Some, perhaps you're a cosmologist and you're sitting around trying to understand Mm -hmm. the origins of the universe, and you're looking at very, very large-scale, law-like regularities of, of, the, of the universe yes. and how they've evolved, and then you go to a party and you meet someone that pretends to be looking at fundamental questions in space and time, and, and you think, well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> that's my day job. What, what are you actually doing that, that's, that's different? My inclination is to favor the idea that philosophers have something to contribute, but only if they know the empirical science of the matter and can raise questions for that the people doing the science can at least appreciate. They may not be able to entirely pursue them themselves. I mean, a certain amount of, for example, quantum mechanics is getting, generating the right set of usable predictions about stuff. Right. And they're pretty good at that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> By now, they're, they're but, really good at it. But to, to figure out what is really the foundations, how does it relate to other things in physics, these are still sure. up in the air. Sadly. And you've got to get some of the scientists to think about those things, and you've got to get some of the philosophers to think about what the science is. And you've got to put those two things together. And philosophy, in contemporary philosophy of physics, and with an orientation towards metaphysics, has a role to play there. So if analytic philosophers do metaphysics, um, how, how can they define themselves against philosophers as a whole? Does they that, don't. Does that categorization have any? They don't. Doesn't have any meaning anymore. No, okay. they don't. Um, there isn't some doctrinaire. There was in early, at earlier stages of analytic philosophy. There were doctrinaire views about what philosophy must be that eliminated whole domains of previous thought, right? That's not true anymore. Um, most analytic philosophers today think that those restrictive doctrines were themselves the product of doctrines that were flawed. And they have a more open and almost ex you know, exper experimental approach. The idea is we're not separate from other intellectual disciplines. All we demand is that you pursue whatever you're pursuing with rigor, you articulate some criteria that can be to some degree tested, not to definitively determine who's correct, but at least provide evidence uh, about who's correct, and that you can understand what the philosopher is saying. Right. You can formulate the theses, and you can generate results, and then take them to other 
domains of intellectual life and see if they contribute anything. So that sounds very tolerant and open-minded and broad-minded. That's what we are. And, well, so, so I'm led <laughs> so to believe. But are, are there any members of your profession who still cling to the old divisions and say, oh, these analytic guys, or this is, I'm not an analytic guy, I'm, a, I'm an X, I'm a Y, I'm something else, I'm doing anything. Does it, does it hold any meaning for people who define themselves as uh, in opposition to uh, what analytic philosophy or analytic philosophers are or do? That's a difficult question to answer. When I started my first job at Yale in 1976, the Yale department saw itself as divided between the analytic philosophers, which were in a minority, and the others who called themselves the pluralists. And what it was to be a pluralist was to be anything but an analytic philosopher. Um, and what it was in their minds to be an analytic philosopher was to be some contemporary version of Carnapian logical positivism. Well, by the time I started in 1976, was that there weren't any of those people. <laughs> right. uh, but there was still at that time a sense that there was some sort of divide and that the people couldn't talk across the divide. I moved in 1980 to Princeton. There wasn't that sort of feeling, though it's a heavily analytic department. But um, there, over, over the two and a half decades that I was there, there were some dis disputes about the role of the history of philosophy in the pursuit of contemporary philosophy. And there were a few members of the department who said, well, look, physicists, chemists, biologists, they're not studying, the, the, the PhD students are not studying the scientists of 200, 300, even 100, perhaps, perhaps even 50 right, years five. ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so why should we do that in philosophy? And one particular professor said that he thought that the rule ought to be that anything that's older than 10 years in philosophy is the history of philosophy, and the history of philosophy was not philosophy. Um, we still had some historians of philosophy, and these historians were actually, for the most part, extremely good, uh, disciplined historians who were also philosophically minded. Right. Um, there may still be some sense that we don't understand well enough what the relationship between contemporary systematic philosophy and one or another area of philosophy is and the history of philosophy. I think in my own field, in my own specialized area of the philosophy of language, the, I don't go back very far historically. I go back to Frege in 1879 and right. 1884 and 1892. And I go back to Bertrand Russell, early Russell. I go a bit back to, uh, to Wittgenstein's Tractatus, though I treat that myself more as a historical document than a 
something that can contribute deeply to what's going on today. But I believe that we can find not only a terrific story of how our contemporary projects got started, but we can find ideas that were developed but not completely followed through by Russell, by Frege, by others, that can be used to solve some of the problems we face today right. and can take that enterprise that they started uh, a lot further than it's gone so far. And so, so, so let me interject there yeah. and let me ask you to back up and tell us a little bit about that story of some of these ideas that they, that they developed and uh, right up until, well, right up until some aspects of, of your research and what some of the issues are and some of the problems are. But I, I, I imagine that there are an awful lot of people who will be watching this or listening to this or perhaps reading this who might have a smattering of some of these ideas. They might have heard of logical positivism. They might have yes. heard of the Vienna Circle. They might have heard of these different movements. Wittgenstein, everybody seems to have heard of Wittgenstein. Few people seem to have read him very deeply, myself included, I have to admit. He's rather uh, hard to read. Uh, <laughs> he certainly, <laughs> certainly was for me. Um, and then there's the whole early Wittgenstein and later Wittgenstein. Oh, uh, they're and sure. So That's I, right. I, uh, uh, I have the non-Wittgenstein, which is like my, my, my favorite. But, but anyway, uh, I, don't, I don't pretend to be a, an expert, obviously. Yeah. Um, but so, so these words are, are out there, and they're aspects of, well, what are we really talking about? Yes, there's, there's logic, there's syllogisms. As you said, Aristotle talked about some of these ideas as he talked about ethics, as he talked about physics, as he talked about a wide range of things. Right. People might have heard of the Principia Mathematica and Russell's attempts to, to, to understand all of mathematics. And so... Um, I think for some people may know nothing, and some people may have some rough, perhaps erroneous notion of some of these ideas. So maybe if you can just sketch a history of some of these core ideas that that led to your current. Let me uh, let me begin. This this is a large set of issues, a large topic. Sure. And let me begin by saying that as I start going through this, if I'm skipping something that something is being left out that the hearer might need, just interrupt and, sure. and sure. get me to clarify. I'm, I'm sure. Well, you've written all these volumes of work <laughs> on history. I'm sure you'll do just fine, so I'm not, I'm not terribly worried. Um, well, the story of analytic philosophy, in my opinion, really starts in 1879 with uh, a German philosopher named Gottlob Frege, who had, and he, I, we call him a philosopher, he was actually in the mathematics department. He was trained in mathematics. And his interest in philosophy began as an interest in the philosophy of mathematics. What is the philosophy of mathematics? <laughs> well, he wanted to know what the basic mathematical objects are and how the different aspects of the study of mathematics were connected to each other and to non-mathematics. So he wanted to know, to put it very simply, what are numbers and what is the nature of mathematical knowledge? And he came up with answers to both of those questions, which proved to be very influential um, in the development of logic, in the development of mathematics, in philosophy in general.
let me just say basically what his sure. answers to those questions were. Um, he, what are numbers? Well, let's start with the number zero. Uh, zero is the set, of concept, uh, the set of concepts that aren't true of anything. So, for example, um, the concept not being identical with itself. Well, that's not true of anything. Right? So, therefore, it's a member of the number zero. Um, the number one. Well, let me give you an example of uh, one of the concepts that is a member of the number one. Um, the concept uh, being interviewed by you today in the Hoos Library at USC. At 10.30. <laughs> at 10.30, that's right. I don't know what your <laughs> later plans for the day I'm trying to be as precise as possible. <laughs> um, well, that's a concept that applies to me and only to me. That makes it uh, a member of the number one, which is the set of concepts of which the following is true. They're true of some x and only x. And so the number two is the set of concepts true of some x and some y, where x is not identical with y and true of nothing else. Notice I haven't used one or two well, or anything like that so. in the definition. Right. Okay. So now we get some sense of what these numbers might be. Uh, what is the successor of a number. We better have the notion of the successor of a number. Well, if you have a number n, the successor of n is um, the set of concepts f such that the cons uh, that are true of at least one object x, such that the concept being an f but not identical with x is a member of n. Okay, so what's that going to give you? If you already have, say, the concept 2, right. then you've got to, let's see, what is the successor of 2? There's got to be some concept which, um, some concept f, uh, and something that it's true of, such that if you kick that thing out, you'll have 2. Well, okay, that'll be the set of three things and so on. We get all that. We can define all the numbers without using any numerical talk. Which is essential, of course. Which is essential. That's what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, and so then what we do, we define what is a natural number. You might think, well, a natural number, that's pretty simple. It's just a number that you can reach by starting at zero and applying successor finitely many times. But then you you kind of frown and you think, what did I mean by finitely many times? What is finitely many? Well, that's some natural number, <laughs> n. <laughs> so you can't do it that way. So what Frege ended up doing is saying something like this. Um, a natural number is a member of the smallest set that contains zero and is closed under successor, that is, if you start with something in the set, you apply successor, you're still in the set. Right. 
And being the smallest just means it's a member of every set of which those conditions hold. Now we've got that. Now we can define multiplication in terms of repeated addition, addition in terms of repeated counting, counting in terms of successor. And you can build up the whole mathematical And now framework. we build up all of arithmetic. And what did we build it up from? These definitions plus what? Just ordinary logical reasoning. Okay. So the idea is, if you can formalize logic, say, what is ordinary logical reasoning? Get a set of axioms, add these definitions, you end up with arithmetic, the theory of the natural numbers. Now, once you've got arithmetic, you can define other parts of mathematics in terms of constructions on the arithmetic, it's the same model. You're always taking a higher theory, finding out what its basic primitive vocabulary is, defining it in terms of the primitive vocabulary of the lower theory, using the axioms of the lower theory to prove the axioms of the higher theory, using the definitions, and now you've reduced the higher to the lower. And the idea is to reduce all, in Frege, all of mathematics except for geometry. He had a special thought about geometry. Um, what, what was that, by the way? What was the special thought about geometry that he, very, very briefly, because that's... I know, it's very surprising. It's interesting as well. It's, I mean. it's, it, it's, not the, it's not the part that we brag about when we talk about Frege. Sure. Um, it's the part that doesn't fit, right? So. <laughs> there were already um, non-Euclidean geometries uh, that were being under consideration at that time. Lobachevsky, you said 1879, right? So yeah. So that, that came, like, Riemann was certainly kicking around by then. I yes, yeah. yes. But Frege thought those were a, a, a purely abstract interest. What is geometry? Geometry is the study of space yeah. as we experience it. Is it empirical space? Somehow? Well, you would think. Yeah. And then so you'd think if physics turned out to require a non-Euclidean geometry, well, Richard, then that would be the space he was talking about. Which he, it does, as it happens. Yes, <laughs> but he didn't think that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. He thought that space was a Kantian category. Oh, yeah. It was something that was contributed by our minds. And our minds were built in a certain way that the only way we could even conceive of space was determined by the category that our mind imposed on it, and that was Euclidean. So he was a strict Kantian then in that, in that he respect? He was a strict Kantian in that respect, Ooh. and that was where he was lagging. <laughs> but in the other aspect, he was pushing forward. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I guess we have part of the, where are we now? So we're at, we're, as I understand it, we're at this, this stage of of looking at what the foundations of mathematics are. Mm -hmm. And so the foundations of mathematics, uh, as you've described, are, are certainly the notion that we can, uh, we can underpin or undergird mathematics from this logical structure. So logic, in and of itself, maybe you could say is, is, is essential, is, is the underpinning of no. mathematics. Look, mathematics is logic on this view. Okay. <laughs> so mathematical knowledge is logical knowledge. Now, there's a fundamental question here that we've just been taking for granted as if we understood what it meant. And that is, what is logic? Yeah. And at the time that Frege wrote um, his 
invention of modern symbolic logic, the previous logic was mostly derived from Aristotle and a few other more recent people, but there was no system of logic in existence that was capable of formalizing all the reasoning in mathematics. So Frege had to invent this. And this invention turned out to be one of the great achievements of the last 150 years. This is what you do brag about, you analytic guys. This, as opposed to his Kantian geometric stuff. I, I, yes, I'm afraid we do a little <laughs> bragging about this. Um, so, let me just try to give you just the, a very, very simple explanation. With, 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 with Aristotle, of course, we have the syllogism. All A's are B's. Socrates is an A, therefore Socrates is a B. All A's are B's. Some B's are C's, therefore some A's are C's. Everything had to be fit into that syllogistic form. Yeah. But a great many things are richer than that. There are a great many, there's an infinite number of valid inference forms. Um, and what you want is a language capable of expressing them and rules that formulate when they're valid, when the inferences are valid. So let's start with a language. Let's just start, suppose we have names, like names of people, places, things. And suppose we have predicates like being a philosopher, um, relations like being taller than, being older than, being north of, being south of, and so on. And we can have relations of any number of things two-place relations, three-place relations, relating three individuals, four-place, any number. Okay, so what are the sentences? You just start with an n-place relation and n names. And then, if you want to make complex sentences, you've got a bunch of these already that you've made, the simple ones, call them atomic sentences, and you can conjoin them with and, or, not, if, then, if, and only if. Terrific. Okay, now you've got the idea of a sentence. It can be one of the simple ones or one of the compound ones. Take one or more names out and put in what we call variables. Variables are just freestanding singular terms that you can assign any object as referent if you want. X. X. That's what, what, what we're all familiar with from normal algebra. Okay. So now, now you want to put in, you want to say all x or some x or at least one x or something like that. So you just put that in front of one of these formulas. And what does that say? It says this formula is true of all objects, some objects, at least one object, and so on. That's the core. And that changes everything. That changes everything. We can now express everything that we need to express in mathematics. And we can formalize all the proofs. We can write rules telling us when the formulas are guaranteed, the sentences are guaranteed, the inferences are guaranteed to preserve truth. And Frege did this. So if I'm somebody listening to this, and I, I know nothing about this, I say, well, that's very interesting, Professor Soames. 
there was this German guy in the 19th century who came up with a deeper understanding of how we ground our mathematical knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, we ground it in logic. Mm -hmm. What is this logic? This logic is this interesting predicate-based system that, that involves yeah. some and all and all these other things that, that yeah. transcend what Aristotle has done. Right. Um, and and that's, that's all well and good. Um, but I don't really care very much about mathematics. Right. That's all fine. Mm. So good for him. It wasn't really all quite fine. There were some problems. But let's pretend it was okay. fine. <laughs> uh, I, so I want to get to some aspects of those problems a little bit later on. But I, yeah. I do want to uh, uh, move a little bit. So um, that's all well and good. But so what? How might this apply to anything if I'm not a mathematician? I mean, for that matter, if I am a mathematician, I may not care because I may think, well, I'm not really worried about the foundations. No, actually, I'm yeah. just going to do my math. Right. But, but I think there are some certainly strong intellectual arguments why mathematicians might want to ensure that they're on a solid foundation. But if you don't care about mathematics at all, then presumably uh, you're more motivated to see how this might apply to other areas before we were talking about... Um, uh, the breadth of philosophical activity and how it's to some extent a continuum and people are doing all sorts of other things. So this type of logical framework, is it only related to mathematics or there, is there anything else I can say about it other than the foundations of mathematics? And, and if so, how did that happen and when did that start to develop? Um, in addition to developing this formal system, this formal language with these rules, Frege needed to say well, how, this is a language. How are we to understand its sentences? What are the ideas that we need in order to understand this particular language that I'm using for this particular purpose? And I'll tell you a little bit about that. It's going to have a lot of, that's what turned out to have a lot of ramifications. Um, the basic idea was Frege took the notion of a function from mathematics and generalized it and used that idea in logic. So predicates and relations stand for functions which assign their arguments, truth or falsity. You have complex formulas. Those, we can compute what function they must stand for from the functions that the parts stand for. When we have the quantifiers, they make claims about the functions. They say the functions have certain properties. And this led to a great deal of power, and it also led to a certain kind of interest, general interest in functions. Um, one of the things that you can do is you can write up a, a proof procedure, and as I say, you can guarantee that when the premises bear a certain relation to the conclusion, then if the premises are true, the conclusion is true. You can re-express that in terms of function argument terminology, and you can basically say that you have an effective positive test for logical truth, and it's encoded in a function which, when you give it any argument, and say, is this a proof? Does this, the truth of this guarantee the proof of that? If it does guarantee the truth of that, the function will always tell you uh, that it does, and it'll never tell you something false. 
this led to the idea of there's a certain class of computable functions, right. and that there were both computable and non-computable functions, so this was a very interesting difference. To distinguish between the two, and also once something is computable, you also start thinking of a decision procedure in terms of how you exactly, actually Exactly, that's how you get to it, yes. And, and compute it, and that's then, so right. you can see that this has transformed our world. In yes. terms, I mean, everything around us we see with, with computation and computers and, and Turing starting and all the rest of this sort of thing, I mean, these, these fundamental ideas about looking at a, at a crank, at a logical crank which is being turned in terms of computation. This, this revolutionized so our world. The greatest follower of Frege was Alonzo Church. Alonzo Church was an American mathematician who taught mathematics at Princeton, and he was also a philosopher of mathematics. He was the editor of the Journal of Symbolic Logic, and, and he, had a stu he studied a number of things, but computable functions was one of them. And he had a student named Alan Turing. And Alan Turing developed a very intuitive, simple technique called the Turing machine. It wasn't really a machine. It's a mathematical framework that could compute any computable function. In terms of a set of instructions on an imaginary machine, which has a finite number of states, which is capable of making one distinction between zero and one. And, and that's your analogy to truth and falsehood. And that's right? where we get the digital right. age. Right. And every computable function can be computed by a Turing machine. Um, and the key thing is you've got to make distinctions between well, what could zero and one be? An electrical circuit being closed, an electrical circuit being open. So anything that you can get a, a Turing machine for, you could, in principle, get an electrical, complex electrical circuit that could compute that function. And this was the basis for, um, you know, what we... Our modern world. You know, what we're, you know, people are going to see on right. this video, on online, and Absolutely. computers, and internet, and everything that we do. Absolutely. So there's, a, so there's the poster boy of relevance, as it were. So <laughs> we've established that. We've established that. Okay, that's one aspect of relevance. There's a second. And the second aspect of relevance is this question, how can we develop a science of, of language? What is language, after all? And there are many aspects of language. Languages have a sound system, and some of them are written languages, so they have that as well. There's the syntax of language, and that's what Noam Chomsky, for example, was so interested in, continues to be interested in, his students are interested in it. And that is, think of it this way, if you had a, a dictionary, somebody somehow gave you a dictionary of all the words, but forget about their meanings for now, which strings would count as sentences of the language and which would count as garbage. And you need a set of principles for categorizing things and forming hierarchical relationships and developing transformational rules and so on. That's syntax. What, what is meaning? What, what is it to understand a language? And what, what do we mean when we talk about a language? 
I don't think we fully know the answer, even in outline to that question today, but we got our start with Frege and Russell. So how? How did that happen? Well, I think it could be reconstructed this way. Go back to a simple logical language that they had a particular use for. They wanted to use the language to talk about things, to talk about concepts, to talk about numbers, to talk about a variety. These were mostly mathematical things. They didn't have to be, they just happened to be. And so the thought is, what is it we want from a sentence? Just, just, just keep talking. But could, you, could somebody maybe stand guard to make sure to stop these guys from talking? Because the reverb is pretty bad. Sorry, go ahead. Here's the basic insight. Sentences are used to talk about things. <laughs> and to, to I might I, say I might, need a, uh, I might not need a philosopher to tell me that. But. <laughs> and that's the central semantic fact that you have to understand about any sentence. You have to say, what's that sentence used to talk about it? To talk about? And what does it say about it? And if you understand that, you've gone a long ways towards understanding what it means. Okay? Great. So, how do we want to construct a theory of meaning for a language? We want to start with what the individual words stand for. We want to say how the individual words can be combined into simple sentences. And when, we, when it's in a simple sentence of this type, one of the words, say, the word H names you. Uh, another uh, word, um, say, is an interviewer, or S stands for me. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm more than just an interviewer. And right interview I mean. stands for uh, a way that two people can interact, a way a certain pair can be. Right. And what way is that? Well, this guy can be asking questions of this guy who can be answered. Okay, so that's how we understand the parts, and when you put them together, we're saying this part is interviewing that guy, and you understand what is it for that sentence to be true? Well, it's for those two to be related in the way that interview says its arguments are related. But it seems to me that a, uh, that a really um, groundbreaking aspect is this notion of, a, of making an equivalence between truth and meaning. To, so that we're, we're looking at how do we isolate the meaning of these things. We talked about the logical framework and what it led to in terms of Alonzo yeah. Church and Turing and, yeah. and, and changing our world and so forth. But yeah. when it comes to language, when we're looking at different models, um, my sense is that, okay, you've got this model structure and this can be true in and, and this model and what, is, what does it mean to be in a model and, and, and all the rest of that. But if we can say that a statement is true, then we're somehow saying something about the meaning of that. Is that, is that a fair uh, that is, comment? That, that was, has been a guiding idea, starting with Frege and Russell and moving on up into the present day. That, that idea has taken different forms and it can be developed in different ways and maybe it's not the whole story about sure. meaning, uh, but it is the core of what we learned from this approach. Yeah. And the basic thought is we can have a language which has finitely many expressions can be used to, we can specify the rules 
that allow infinitely many sentences. And then we can, we can specify the conditions for each sentence that have to be satisfied by the world if that sentence is to be true. Right. And we can do that in a compact, finite way by understanding what the parts stand for and understanding how putting them together yields a claim of a certain sort. And this was how this was originally developed. It was, it's called the model theory or the semantics, sometimes it's called, for these logical languages that Frege developed and Russell pursued and, and, and various, Tarski in the end uh, ended up uh, advancing this. And the germ of the idea is that if we understand the truth conditions of a sentence, the condition, what is it saying it, about the world, and what way does the world have to be in order for it to be true? Right. Then we have the beginnings of a theory of meaning for a language. And the question has been how to make that robust enough to give us everything we're going to need in a theory of meaning. And so when you say, what does it say about the world, this is also where this notion of possible worlds comes from, because mm -hmm. one can imagine that there are worlds where this is not true, where this doesn't apply, so we're looking at possible environments, possible worlds, possible models, where possible conditions whereby this, uh, this property, whatever it is, is actually true. Yes. Um, and, and so we're getting closer, I think, to the point where there's a problem. This is where I want to get to for the, <laughs> for the next stage where things break down. Because so far everything has been a more or less, you said, oh, there are a few problems here and a few problems there, but so far it's been a pretty raging success story, it seems to me. Yeah. This guy comes along and he says, I'm interested in the foundations of mathematics. Mathematics is based on logic. Here's my logic. Uh, a whole bunch of work and model building, proof, turning cranks, leads to development of computer science, leads to all sorts of other wonderful things that have changed our world. And then we look at it with within a philosophy of language perspective and people start building models and, and, and looking at proving, the, uh, making an equivalence to the, the, the truth of statements and their meanings in different models and different possible worlds. Everything seems rosy, right? It does. Um, but uh, let me just back up a little and quote from something that you quoted from in your book, which is a quote from Russell, if memory serves, of, from, I don't know, some logical atomism or something like that, where he talks about what philosophy versus science. And he says some words to the effect of philosophy is what we don't know, and as soon as we know something, then it becomes science. And so there's a sense of philosophy giving birth to science. You know, philosophers are sitting around in the desert and saying, hey, what's up there, what's up there? And then eventually people start uh, uh, treating this more rigorously, and, and bang, you get physics that comes out of it. Or philosophy, so philosophy I'm, okay, so, so I know this is good. <laughs> but I, uh, very, very crudely, this, this notion that, um, that philosophers are asking these questions, and then as soon as we start having some very clear, distinct pathway towards developing uh, concrete solutions, it becomes a science. That, that, that's, these are his words, as I understand it, or his implications as to the philosophy vis-a-vis -vis science. And so in your, in, your, in your book here, in one of the essays, you talk about how one might think in the philosophy of language that 
there is this equivalence between, uh, it, it un, under this model structure with meaning being equivalent to truth within these models, one might think, well, that's it then. And so linguistics can take over and we can turn a crank and we, we can start understanding everything there is about meaning. Um, and so the philosophers can then get out of the way, and according to Russell, and move on to, to other things, ethics or something that, they <laughs> that, 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 that haven't been uh, appropriately systematized or whatever. But it turns out that's not the case. So that's my sense of what you were saying there. Is that um, wrong? <laughs> uh, you, you're right. Um, there's a lot of very good crank turning that continues to go on, and there is a lot of progress um, that is still to be made in that general line. But there's, there are a number of things that are left out. The biggest thing that's left out is the second half of the equation, as you might put it. Um, what is meaning? Well, we've said, well, these sentences, they impose conditions that the world must satisfy if they are to be true. And so meaning must just be the truth conditions that a sentence imposes on the world. Um, the other side of the coin is language is not just something that is about things in the world. Language is used by agents. And it's the agents using the language in a certain way that leads to the fact that the sentence has the meaning and carries the information that it does. And that ultimately is what explains the truth conditions of the sentence. And moreover, the cognitive relation that the agent bears to the sentence is something that imposes conditions. There are conditions, in, certain meanings impose conditions on those who entertain them. Yeah. Just as they impose conditions, truth conditions, on the world that they represent. Now, Russell and Frege, they weren't so interested in coming up with a science of language that had both sides of this story covered. Right. They were interested in using a powerful enough language to, to solve the philosophical problems that they were interested in. As a tool for mathematics, but not as studying <laughs> language in and of itself. And, and but if language done. is to be, if we are to have a science of language, we must understand both sides of this equation. And that we don't, we don't yet have. Okay. So, so my understanding is, from, from reading uh, some of your work, is, is this, this idea, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fastening on to this cognitive act idea, is that when, when we exchange information, there is a we who is exchanging information. There, the, that it's, it is... And the, when we think, there is an agent doing the thinking. And how that thinking is done has important that connections with what the information exactly. actually is. That itself contains information. I, I <laughs> yeah. mean, that, that is yes, part of the meta-information. That, that, up until now, we have not had a model of information that makes that a part of it. What has the model of information been? 
Very simply put, we'll go back to the possible worlds idea. Here's what you can do, and, and here's what lots of people do today very effectively and well. They take, it used to be these formal logical languages, now they're, this is applied to natural languages or fragments of natural languages, and they say, I will show you how to assign contents to the individual words and phrases, how to interpret the manners of construction that will allow me to derive a theorem of the following kind for every one of the infinitely many sentences in this fragment. And the theorem will be such and such sentence S, now I'm going to use a little terminology we'll have to explain, is true at a possible world W, if and only if, at that possible world W, so-and-so. And the so-and-so gives the conditions the world must satisfy in order for that sentence, as it's used with this meaning, to be true. We're very good at that. And if you say, okay, fine, what then is the information contained by that sentence as? Well, clearly it's the set of possible worlds in which the thing is true. Uh, that's what that's what the information is. Information is, what do you know when you know that S? Yeah. Well, you know the actual world is one of these. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's, that's the basic story. Now, there's a couple of ways I can go here, and I, I want you to tell me which is most explanatory. Okay. If you want me to tell you what a possible world is, or you want me to tell you some of the problems that are being that we run into when we follow this model. I think let's go to some of the problems because I think a possible world is something that I think. Okay. Um, one of the problems is that sentences true in the same possible worlds express the same proposition. And that means every necessary truth. Well, there's really only one. Yeah. I, I, there's lots of sentences that happen to express the one necessary truth. But it kind of seems like I can know that one equals one without knowing every fact of mathematics, yeah. all of which are necessary. They shouldn't all be equivalent to one another. <laughs> yeah. So that's a fundamental problem. There's another, there's a whole range that sort of work off that, but that's the fundamental one that works out. This, is, this gives us a conception of, of representation, which is too coarse-grained. Right. It's, it's exceedingly coarse-grained. So fact. there's yeah. more to truth conditions than there is to sets of possible worlds in which they're true. And when I was talking informally about truth conditions, what did I say? I said, well, what is it to know the meaning of a sentence? It's to know that it's talking about this particular thing, and it's saying of it that it's this particular way, yeah. and then what's truth going to mean? Well, it's going to be true, in case that thing really is that way. <laughs> um, but there's a bit of question begging seemingly going on, because you have to be able to know what the, you have to understand this idea of truth of the proposition somehow. Anyway, I'll, I'll let you. No, I'd, I'd like to hear. Um, I'd like to hear you develop that if you think you can. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so, so I was afraid of this. So the, the, let, me, let me move into a, a, a different thing which struck me. Um, I, could, I could try, but I would rather do it when I have more time, because I'll, I'll just ramble. And I'm, okay. sure, I'm sure it'll be worthless, but it'll be a very long, worthless digression. Mm -hmm. um, you, you give a very concrete example in, in one of your essays, and you talk about this, you look at this proposition, because it's all about what is a proposition and what is Proposition, that? a piece of information. A piece of information. Yep. So what is that information? And this idea of a theory of language looking at meaning while we're talking about pieces of information. And so what is that piece of information? So yes. you talk about giving an example of a brown suitcase. This is a brown suitcase. And again, it's one person Let's make a table. Here. Okay, so this is a brown table. Okay. Well, in the normal course of exchanging information, it seems to me this is, this is something that, about what you're saying. So maybe I'm missing the boat, but since I'm talking to you, you'll be able to set me straight. So you would, previously people thought, well, these are just propositions. This is a brown table, that's a brown cup, uh, it's raining today. Some people would say uh, the proposition is the set of worlds in which this thing is brown and a table. Right, okay, I'm sure they would. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but th there's a sense that it is independent of me communicating that to you. And then you say, well, in some ways you talk about um, again, it's this idea of the cognitive activity and the action of the person who's actually saying it. So uh, somebody would say, you wouldn't say, or rather you would say, somebody is talking excitedly or somebody is talking intelligently or somebody is talking, uh, uh, you, you, would be, you would be providing all this, this additional context to that in, in a normal way of exchanging meaning. And similarly, what one should be somehow taking into account is not just this proposition, this bit of information, the table is brown, but I should be talking in some way, in a, in a, in a Brownian way, as it were. I am talking about brownness. That should be somehow yeah. related to what it is that I am doing to you, because that is information. Now, we take that for granted on some simple statements that I am now talking about brownness, and so when I say this is a brown table, I am imposing all sorts of additional information, context, structure that is hidden, so you can't just look at those words and say that they have meaning in and of themselves. Is that? That's, that's too many different things at once. Okay. Um, <laughs> but let me try to pick up a piece of it. If you're thinking about what is a piece of information, well, what is a piece of information? It's something that we can use a sentence to express. We know that. Well, what do we do with sentences? Sometimes we assert things. So what are we asserting when we use two sentences that express the same piece of information? Well, we're asserting that information. That right. Information is, they are things asserted, they are things believed, they are contents of some sentences. And what is it that can play that role? Okay. First thing you've got to ask is, how tied to language must this be? It is tied. We use sentences right. to express information, but we can believe things. Right. And animals can believe things. Without using any language. And merely possible agents can believe things without using the English sentence that we use, sometimes without using any sentence at all. Right. So there must be this notion, a piece of information. What must it do? It may, perhaps it must do many things. But one thing it must do is it must represent something as being some way. Okay. 
and then we know what truth is going to be, that piece of information is going to be true if there is such a thing and it is that way. Right. That'll be easy. What kind of thing can it be that we bear this relation to it? We can believe it. We can assert it. We can doubt it. But it's something that can be true or false depending on what it represents and whether the thing is that way. Now, one thing it can't be is a set of possible worlds because the set of possible worlds is, number one, what does it represent? Nothing. What does a world, just a set of three worlds in it? Right. Doesn't represent doesn't anything. Doesn't necessarily represent anything. Yeah. And even if you were to play a game and assign truth conditions to those sets of worlds, we've seen that there are many different propositions that you'd assign the same set of worlds to. But they wouldn't mean the same thing. It wouldn't be what you believe. They wouldn't be what you assert. Right. So we know it can't be those things. Okay. What can it be? Russell and Frege thought that there was such a thing. They knew that sentences were somehow used to express them. They could not figure out what, what it was, and they ended up giving up on the idea. And much of the tradition turned to sentences and truth conditions, and then it got augmented to truth relative to a possible world state, and then propositions came back again, but they were sets of possible world state, or possible worlds. And then we're at the problem that we're, we're talking about right now. That's where we find ourselves today. We need the notion of something which isn't itself a piece of language, which represents things as being a certain way, and so can be true or false, and have truth conditions. And where are we going to get this notion of a representational thing? My belief is we start with the fundamental presupposition that it's minds that represent. Minds are the representational entities. And minds, when they represent things in a certain way, they do so by following certain cognitive processes. Let me just give a name, and that's, that's all it is. When I look at this table, and I see it as brown, my visual system represents this thing as brown. It, so to speak, predicates being brown of that thing that I'm in visual contact with. So that's a logical antecedent to the, to the that idea That is of... the antecedent to language, but it's a piece of information. Moreover, I can form a perceptual belief that it's brown. If I have the concept of a table, I can form the belief that it's a brown table. All of these things I can do. I can do some of them, whether I have any language or not. Um, and if, as we get more complicated, I can do it with some language, but it doesn't matter which language I happen to speak. Is it more that you can do it, or is it more that you must do it in terms of that's an essential aspect of, a, of what we previously just called a proposition? Is it that's how you augment a proposition by, by imposing, or not imposing, adding, augmenting this other Let me put it this way. I can structure. predicate brownness of this table 
simply visually without using any language. Or sure. I can close my eyes and say, this table is brown, and I'm using the language to perform the same predication. The two acts are both acts in which I predicate something of an object, but they have a difference in how I'm performing that act. In one case, I'm using language to do it. In the other case, my visual system is doing it for me. So let's take a piece of information to be one of these acts predic predicating brownness of this thing. And then let's take different forms that that act can take, using language to do so, using percep in, in one's perception to do so, in one's imagination. Those are all propositions as well. They're different, slightly different cognitive acts, but they have the same representational content because they're all predications of brownness of that object. They have identical truth conditions. They impose the same conditions on the world. They impose different conditions on the agent who's using, who's performing the action. One requires some language, the other requires visual perception, the other requires imagination. And we start from there. We start from the idea that there are two sides, right? There is this mental operation that I can perform, that any animal with a visual system and with a, can represent colors can perform. Right. Maybe their neurology is different from mine, but somehow their neurology is accomplishing this, right. and my neurology is accomplishing I can imagine people saying, this is all very interesting, Professor Soames. I, I recognize the fact that you're a very sophisticated guy, but all this talk about sitting here and talking about finer degrees of what propositions are and tables and so forth, how can that possibly ever apply to the real world or any aspect of the world as I see it? Um, I'll talk a little bit about the kinds of implications that I think um, philosophy of language can have for one specific aspect of the philosophy of law. And that is um, what you might call the philosophy of legal interpretation. What does an interpreter do? Um, what, how should we understand it? By an interpreter, I think let's mean somebody who takes a law that has been promulgated by a legislative authority. It's already been passed. It, you, you may be working for an administrative agency and you have to come up with what they'll call rules for implementing the law. You may be uh, a judge that is called upon to render a verdict in some case in which there's a dispute about whether the law applies and what it means. Right. Uh, and there's a question about how we should think about pr that process, what, what you ought to be doing. And the first, uh, uh, the process begins with what one might call the content of the law. There's usually a written text, and that written text, as we say, encodes or expresses some content, some information. And the question is, what does that written text require? 
uh, what falls under it and what doesn't. The first task of a legal interpreter is to discover what that content is, what that representational content is. And you might think, well, the words are there. Right. It's easy. <laughs> Read them. So <laughs> you just understand the words. Uh, that would be true if the context in which those words were used by the legislative body or authority made no contribution whatsoever to the information that was being asserted or stipulated by the body in question. That's not true if we look at ordinary uses of language. It's not true that context plays no role sure. in determining the content of what words are used to assert, or to stipulate, or to order. Right. Um, and if you look closely at what goes on when uh, judges are looking at some of these legal texts, it's not always true in the law either. The context does sometimes provide um, information which is not present uh, in the words that are used. Uh, there was one case that I'll just mention that's probably the easiest way to grasp this. There was the famous case everybody talks about. It's a Smith case. It's about, um, it's about a provision that was passed by Congress that uh, if you committed a um, felony um, and uh, uh, you were, you did it using a gun, you had an extra five years uh, attached to your sentence because you were using a gun. Now, it was actually using or carrying a gun, but we'll say using. What is using a gun? Uh, one question you might ask, if somebody said uh, to you, have you ever used a gun? Um, at least in some context, people would think you were being asked, have you ever used a gun as a weapon? Right. If you, a long time ago, inherited an old um, rifle from your grandfather as part of his estate, and you sold it and made a profit. You're using it. Uh, and somebody asked you if you were in a, the right sort of situation, asked, have you used a gun? You, would think, you wouldn't think, well, I used it then. <laughs> Because you would interpret them as asking the question, right. have you ever used a gun as a weapon? Or if you use it as a paperweight and you're, you have a Colt 45 as a paperweight somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So even though the question doesn't say as a weapon, often the context indicates sure. that that's what was at stake. And this case came to the Supreme Court. The fellow Smith was, he had a gun. He was trading it for drugs. Uh, and the question was, should he have an extra five years added on to his sentence because he used the gun in um, a drug trafficking uh, crime? The court ruled <laughs> that he should have the extra five years really? tacked on because 
the plain meaning of used a gun, the plain meaning in English is, well, we can talk about using a gun as a weapon, of course, but we can also talk about it as using it as uh, a paperweight or using it uh, for some other purpose or simply using it for some purpose. And of course the Congress could have been more specific, but since they weren't, we must take the plain meaning at its face. And the plain meaning uh, simply is to use a gun, period. And that's because they were looking at the meanings of the words. Instead of the intentionality. Instead of the intentionality. Mm -hmm. Instead of what, what the words were used to assert or stipulate. Right. So the first thing we must do is find out what was asserted or stipulated. And distinguish and between these two. And presumably. distinguish between the two. Yeah. Suppose you've done that. Suppose you're an interpreter. You've done it. You've still got a hard case in front of you. Why? Because the language says, oh, this is an artificial example. No vehicles in the park. What's a vehicle? <laughs> well, we know cars are vehicles, and motorcycles are vehicles, and trucks are vehicles. Are skateboards vehicles? Are, are wheelchairs vehicles? Mm. Are tricycles vehicles? <laughs> are little red wagons vehicles? <laughs> well, it's vague, isn't it? Mm. So there's, when, when a concept is vague, it doesn't f clearly fall under what was asserted, nor is it completely clear that it's excluded by right. what is asserted. Right. It's simply left open. The law is silent about that question. Nevertheless, you have a case in front of you. You have to have some decision procedure. You have you, to do something. You have to do something. Uh, and it may be impractical to go back to the town council and say, what exactly did you mean? They may be on vacation or whatever. They may have been dead 50 years they, for now. Or, or who or knows? Or whatever. Yeah. Okay. So you need, you need some principle. Yeah. So what would we do in an ordinary situation, I mean, when it wasn't a legal matter, and you uh, tell me something, we're going to meet at a certain point, but it's vague exactly where and when we're going to meet. Well, I would try to discern what were we going to do when we met. Well, perhaps we were meeting for lunch, and we had narrowed it down at least to a block area, but there was only one restaurant in that block area, and I would go to that place and think, well, I should interpret him as having directed me to go there. Right. What we do is we look at why was the law passed? What was the rationale? What were they trying to accomplish? Were they trying to eliminate noise and pollution and so forth? They were really thinking of motor vehicles. Um, were they, did they have some other motivation in mind? And once you come up with what the rationale was, and you say, well, it's silent about this case, you make the minimum modification in the law that best advances the rationale for the original law and apply it to this case, and if that becomes a precedent, the law has changed to a certain degree. It's become more precise than it was before. So there's a decision procedure right yes. there. Yes, yes. 
Of course, it requires judgment because it's not a real algorithm, but it gives you sure. criteria. And we're not robots. We live in the yeah. real world with all sorts of shades of gray. But at least it gives you some sense if you're a judge or if you're on a jury or what have you, depending on the circumstances. You don't just throw up your hands and say, gosh, I have no idea what to do. You have, you have some clear sense, difficult though it may be, as to as to a prioritized sequence of what you should be doing, what you should be looking for, where you should go. It gives some sense of direction. Yes. And notice, the question wasn't, does the judge, what's, what's the judge think the purpose of the law should have been? Right. And what's the judge's view sure. about um, what vehicles should be around? No. The judge is making a decision, all right, and it takes a certain amount of discretion on his or her part to do so. But what he's trying to do is advance the rationale for law originally, where the rationale is basically the values and arguments that were articulated publicly um, to advance the law and to explain what it was trying to achieve. Which is, of course, completely in keeping with the judicial tradition. It's not up to the judge to decide whether he or she is interested in this or that. It's, it's interpreting the law in terms of the original what intent What I'm as best trying as to do is to do justice to two things, both of which are obvious, but they're sometimes hard to put together. One is there are certain cases in which the law, which may have been passed at some other time, simply didn't envision a certain situation. Some decision must be made. Whatever decision is made will change the law in a, some degree. So in, when the court does this, the court must make new law. So the idea that courts never make law, they never legislate, no, they, they sometimes must do so. But they must do so in a deferential way, trying to make the minimum change that would advance the rationale, not their particular rationale, the rationale that was offered in favor of the law in the first place. It makes sense of this idea in our judicial system that the different branches, their powers are separate and, and, and confined. That, that strikes but, me. Oh, sir, go ahead. Yeah. And, but this vagueness isn't the only time this sure. happens, but that's one but That's time. something very, very concrete to, to, to start with now. And, and I guess a follow-up question is, um, this strikes me as a, uh, as a wonderful counterexample to my uh, 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 my fictitious, uh, angry Philadelphia lawyer type of <laughs> type of individual, um, and I, I know that uh, from from our previous discussion, you were telling me that uh, there is some level of structural integration between the, the Department of Philosophy and Law and their programs in philosophy and law. Yes. And so I'm the the. Uh, my, my question is, is this having some sort of an effect? It seems structurally it's having an effect. What I mean by is this, uh, I should be clear with my meaning, of course. Uh, what, what, I, what I mean to say <laughs> is um, uh, these ideas, this, this steadfast, rigorous progression towards deeper understanding, greater clarity, greater uh, interpretation of meaning and so forth, and put in various different contexts, such as the legal context, um, is this structural integration between philosophy of language and law happening more broadly? Is, is it University of Southern California that's taking the lead on this, or is this, is this something which is a, generally a widespread phenomenon? It's not widespread. Um, 
when we started this program in philosophy, politics, and law, it was about five or six years ago. Um, we didn't, we were not aware of any uh, program like really? this in the United States. I, I think since we've started it, there, there, I've heard of one or two, and I'm, I'm, I don't remember quite where they are. And they weren't all, I mean, not all, one or two, one or two or three. Uh, and I'm not sure it was philosophy, politics, and law. One of them may have been philosophy, politics, and economics, like at Oxford. Um, this is very unusual. Um, and yet, it shouldn't be. Um, this is one example of how philosophy can connect in meaningful ways to other disciplines in ways that advance the interests of their own and the values of themselves, but of their students, of their undergraduates. Right. And it's become enormously popular. I mean, uh, in terms of our, our majors, well, we've, we've revamped our traditional major, but this is now part of our major as well. We've gone from, I'd say five years ago, 125 majors. We now have 260. Wow. And this is, this is at a time when humanities majors are dwindling everywhere. Um, and, you know, I think this can be done not exactly this, not with those numbers, connecting philosophy to other parts of the university. I, I think we'd very much like to have a philosophy and physics program that would get people to combine the study of both, and they would come out with both a BA and a master's in it because it requires pretty intensive training. Right. Um, this is the kind of thing that philosophy should be built to do. A, full, a, a discipline that goes back to Aristotle, whose reach was in all aspects of intellectual life, should be continually striving to make these connections and to make contributions um, that are philosophically interesting, but they're also interesting to people who have a different take. Right. And an obvious point to make is that not only does it expand the reach of philosophy and uh, has beneficial effects towards all these other disciplines, law, physics, what have you, but it also replenishes philosophy itself, of course. The, the very contact with these other areas, thinking in this particular different way, interaction, interchange. Wow, that was a, that that, was a That's one. a motor, that motor was, bike. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, interaction and, and interchange enables uh, philosophy itself uh, to, to progress or, 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 or be enlightened or be exposed to different ideas. It's healthy for, for philosophy. So it's, it's, it's not just the case of applied philosophy. Yes, we should all be doing applied philosophy as well. It's, it's, it's the sense of replenishment on both sides. Oh, it's, it certainly is. You know, I, I gave um, some lectures in Germany last year uh, on, on some of the material about information and language and things like that. Uh, the title of the lecture series, they had some other people come at different times of the semester, was something like, um, what is the agenda of 21st century philosophy? And after my uh, lectures, um, there, there was a strain of questioning coming from the students and even some of the professors, um, especially as I was emphasizing the way in which philosophy contributes to the study of 
what is information, which we think is in the process of giving birth to a, a genuine science, and they would say, they said, yeah, but, you know, what happens when all these things become science, sciences? That's one of my questions. Uh, <laughs> You're on the we'll, job. And th there won't be anything for philosophers <laughs> to do anymore. And, and my first reaction, which I still feel the same about, is do you seriously think <laughs> that there are fewer philosophical questions out there to be investigated now than there were in Aristotle's time? There are more. Every science that breaks off from philosophy makes enough progress so that it can become solid and non-controversial in, in a core domain always reaches a frontier. And it gets stuck. And it's trying to advance, and it doesn't quite know to, how to conceptualize what to do. And that is what philosophers do. That's our job, to go out to the edge of some domain that's not maybe partially understood, but not completely understood, and to see what might come next. What, what should we be thinking about? What are the alternatives? What concepts can we employ? But of course, this, this is a strategy for engagement. Of course, this is completely equivalent to the idea that because there are these frontiers that are out there that may or may not have been the descendants long ago of philosophy, or mm -hmm. that doesn't matter. But because right. these frontiers are actually out there, um, it, were philosophers sufficiently motivated, they could engage in so many different areas in a very We are way. doing more of it, and it will increase over time. When you talked about this is not just applied philosophy, this is replenishment of philosophy. Another way of putting that is that's what philosophy is. It's looking over the horizon and finding how can we expand our reach? What questions can we ask? And yes, that takes a different form now because there's so much other knowledge available. And yes, if you're in my department and you're working on quantum mechanics, you and I don't have a huge overlap in terms of our philosophical expertise. I've given up on quantum mechanics long ago, by the way, but, but I, I understand I'm just a, just a case study. But this is how it is in philosophy. Philosophy departments are full of specialized researchers. Now, many of these specialties are specialties in the sense that they relate philosophy to linguistics, to mathematics, to physics, to all sorts of things, and there will be more. Of course, we have some specialization even within history and within what are more traditionally thought of as core philosophical problems. But we are existing in an age of specialization, and philosophers provide, philosophers do not overcome specialization. They're specialized too. But they take a slightly broader perspective, a slightly different perspective on law, on politics, on physical science, on mathematics. They raise some questions that wouldn't ordinarily be raised. They help make advances. They help expand what we do. And that's just central to our task. That's not applied philosophy. It's not like we've got some results over here sure. and we want to teach them to you. That's what you do. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to ask um, a few questions getting back to 
analytic philosophy specifically and getting back to some aspects of logic, because I can imagine I'm somebody sitting back, again, who might have heard of some of these ideas, and say, well, okay, I get the general framework of what you're saying, I understand the core issues, and I understand the important role that logical structures need to play in this. Um, you mentioned previously that uh, this glossed over summary that I gave of, well, we've taken care of mathematics and then we move on to these other fields isn't quite correct. Uh, and I presume, although I may be wrong in, in, uh, uh, in pointing to redefinitions of sets and Russell's paradox and all the rest yeah. of this kind of uh, stuff. Right. Um, so if I'm sitting here uh, listening to this and I think, well, hang on a minute, there was this Gödel guy and there were these incompleteness theorems. Yes. And he, uh, what, what does that mean in terms of logical structures that you're talking about? What sort of ramifications does that have for any of your work, be it in the philosophy of language or be it in uh, aspects of the philosophy of mathematics? Hmm. Well, he's, uh, I'm working on my second volume now. <laughs> he, he and Tarski, is I'm coming up to the chapters on them. Um, with Gödel and, and Tarski and Church, symbolic logic became the study of logical systems and formal systems became itself a domain of inquiry and a domain of, of solid results and surprising results. And um, Gödel's results um, were among the most surprising. Um, the, uh, the central result, how, how can I put this? Here's a way of putting it, I guess. Should I say something about the results, or should you want to know about it? Whatever you want. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's unfair for me to just, uh, this is a very difficult question to answer for anyone. If I talk to uh, Roger Penrose and I say, what are, you know, what, what are the implications of, of of the incompleteness theorems for physics. He'll have his view, uh, and, mm -hmm. and, and he's thought about this long and hard, and it might take him two hours to fully articulate it with all sorts of caveats. There are all sorts of people who might not, uh, and there are people who have very different views. I guess what I'm asking really for you to speculate a little bit, because I'm not looking for, a, I'm not looking for an ironclad answer. Yeah. If you have one, that's great, mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm not looking for that. What I'm really looking for is for you to, uh, for you to illuminate me because as I'm reading this, I'm thinking there's a, there's a, a very okay. strong role played by logical structure. Okay. And I know, I know that, that uh, the incompleteness theorems led to this upheaval of what we know as, as, as logical systems, or at least potentially. There's some degree of, of variation as to what, what they really imply and what they really mean. Um, does it have any, do the incompleteness theorems have any clear and obvious relevance towards the philosophy of language um, in your view? Or, or might they? And if so, how? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are some certain hard facts that are, that are simply proven, certain hard limitations that we run up against. Um, do those limitations um, prevent us from doing things that we'd like to do? No. How could they possibly? They are conception. <laughs> they, are, they are, he's demonstrated that certain things are impossible. 
Um, but in the meantime, we're talking to one another right now. So. Uh, well, that's perfectly fine. Uh, that's perfectly fine. No, um, but I mean, in terms of we, for, we don't need a decision. We don't need a decision procedure right. for first order logical truth right. in order to use first order sentences to explain information uh, or or to communicate information. Um, I think, to me, what is fascinating is all these results are really applications of paradoxes. And they are constructive applications of paradoxes. You show that if certain things that you thought might be true were true, a paradox is generated and you get a contradiction and that indicates that those things can't possibly be true. And we are not at all at the end of using that form of reasoning, and indeed the very paradoxes that right. provided really what was going on with the Gödel incompleteness theorem with their, with their punch, we are still finding more implications <laughs> about the liar paradox is the key paradox. Right. Uh, what I'm saying now is not true. There, there are, of course, interesting and much more complicated and fascinating versions of it. And my sense is that, that Russell's, it, to a certain extent, this idea of the, the, the meta structure is, uh, Russell's paradox was also an aspect of that, right? I mean, I, to the extent that he's looking at the sets of This sets is of, a controversial matter. I don't see it that way myself. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I think of these other paradoxes, their versions of, uh, their semantic paradoxes is what they're sometimes called. I don't think Russell's paradoxes. So they're different types of them? I, I, I think, though okay. they're, you know, I'm not sure I understand the fully. Sure, but I'm talking what's to you, going so on I, I, I want to know your view, even if it's speculative, even if you, you know. Yeah. Um, one of the things that's interesting about uh, the Gödel incompleteness theorem is that it's very closely related to a theorem called the arithmetical indefinability of arithmetical truth. That's a Tarski theorem. And it's really Tarski just using the Gödel methodology so to develop the so same thing. So, yeah, good numbering. What, what, is, what does he do exactly? <laughs> well, um, what happens is, of course, in, in Gödel is one of the key things you do is you've got a formal language, let's say, arithmetic, uh, and you develop, what, what does arithmetic talk about? Well, it talks about numbers. Um, but you develop a coding system so that you associate each sentence of the language with a number. And there's an effective procedure so that given any sentence, you can figure out what the number, its Gödel number is. Yeah. And uh, given any number, you can figure out first whether it is the Gödel number of anything, and if it is, what it's the Gödel number of. So it's effectively decidable that the numbering system has to be that right. way. Sure. And um, so what you, what you then do is you take some of the sentences and formulas of the language, which, what do they do? They talk about numbers. And then, since you've set up a coding system, you can take them as talking about expressions in the language. You can take them as talking even about themselves. Right. And 
what would it be for arithmetical truth to be definable in arithmetic? That would mean for the set of girdle numbers of true sentences, set of number, girdle numbers of true sentences, to be uh, the girdle number of some formula in the language of arithmetic. So that formula, if there were such a thing, could serve as the truth predicate right. for the language of arithmetic. Well, you can prove that if there were uh, such a formula, then the liar paradox would be uh, reconstructable in arithmetic, and it would have to be either true or not true, but to assume that it's true, you'll get a contradiction that it's not true, and to assume that it's not true, you'll get a contradiction that it's true. Hmm. And so the conclusion that people draw is that there is no formula of the language of arithmetic which has those properties. Now, what makes it seem very puzzling is that what you have to assume about the language of arithmetic in order to prove this and then prove it can't have its own truth predicate is very, it's a very mild set of assumptions and they're obviously satisfied by English. Hmm. <laughs> uh, or it looks like they're obviously satisfied by English. Right. And so English doesn't have its own truth predicate. So you find yourself saying, there is no truth predicate of English. Hmm, that's kind of hard. There's this word true. There is this phrase, is a true sentence of English. Now, you're telling me that's not a truth predicate? Oh, that's not a, well, certainly it sounds, seems like a predicate of English. Uh, well, if it's not a truth predicate, that would have to mean Either it applies to something which isn't, what, a true sentence of English? Well, that couldn't be. Or there's some true sentence of English which is such that if you say of it, it's a true sentence of English? Hope it happens. <laughs> so how could that possibly be? Yeah. And in some sense, it couldn't possibly be. What, quest, what conclusion do you draw from this? Okay, so this strikes me as still an unresolved question. Oh. And yet, it appears to be an application of a fundamental theorem. Everybody regards it to be a fundamental theorem, the arithmetical indefinability of arithmetical truth, which is just a simple application of the Gödel methodology. But maybe the problem breaks down not so much on the fundamental, uh, not, not so much on the Tarski result with respect to arithmetics, but on the on the so-called so application to English. I Maybe. Mean, if, if, you're, if you're saying, oh, no, 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 language, you see, is somehow different, and somehow is... But, you know, I, I've tried to state the assumptions and, and apply them to English in, in one of my books, and it looks pretty persuasive. Yeah. Now, of course, the result can't be right. Yeah. And there's different ways in which you can go to say why it isn't right. But which is the right way to go to say why it isn't right. It isn't right. Yeah. But are you saying, are there implications? Well, here's an issue that's still deep, important, unresolved, and we've got people working on it. Is there anything I <laughs> have omitted?
I'm sure there? there's lots is, of is things. There anything, is there anything you'd like? <laughs> okay, so let me rephrase that question, because it's a terrible question. You see, this is the problem of talking to an analytic philosopher. I'll tell you when you're, you're not saying something very precisely and well. But um, have I omitted something significant? Is there anything you would like to say or add? Yeah, I'd like to have two or three more of these interviews. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> How long are you around for? <laughs> you should fix somewhere a little quieter, I think, but uh, that's, that's, that's my fault. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with James Robert Brown, Patricia Churchland, Charles Foster, and Alfred Mealy. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.